0: How do we fix historic inequalities that continue to plague people of color, particularly in the corporate world? It is clear that our citizens are no longer comfortable with their traditional approaches to addressing racial inequality. The ones that contain the right language and practices, but are mostly symbolic and ultimately yield slow and often insignificant change. And so this podcast, The Equalizer Project, was born through conversations with leaders who can share rich, complex, and powerful experiences of life in corporate America. I hope to bring awareness, to heal, to inspire. It is part of my calling, my personal mission to change lives, to leave others better off, This is the work of the Equalizer Project podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the launch of our new podcast, The Equalizer Project. I am Brenda Ross Doolin, your host. I am so incredibly honored to have a conversation with my longtime friend, Michael Lawson, president and CEO of the Los Angeles Urban League. Michael Lawson is an extraordinary business leader, community advocate, legal mind and strategist. He earned a BA in political science and economics from Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles and a JD from Harvard Law. He began his career in 1978 as a staff attorney for the U.S. Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation in Washington, D.C. In 1980, he returned to Los Angeles to join the prestigious law firm of Skadden, Arps, Slate, Marr, and Flom, where he specialized in mergers and acquisitions, bankruptcy, and litigation. He became a partner at the law firm and thrived there for 31 years before retiring in 2011. In 2013, President Barack Obama nominated Michael to serve as U.S. Ambassador to the International Civil Aviation Organization, a specialized agency of the United Nations. Based in Montreal, Canada, he served in this role from 2014 to 2017 coordinating and regulating international air travel. In 2018, he became president and CEO of the Los Angeles Urban League, one of the nation's most respected civil rights and urban advocacy organizations. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Michael here today. Let me say to all of you, while I have run through a number of accolades, I think you should really know that Michael is an extraordinarily generous, kind, and amazing friend and counselor. So welcome to the show today, Michael.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me.
0: I am excited for others to get to know you beyond uh, your title. You have such uh, rich experiences to share with us. But uh, let me just take a moment and just have you uh, talk a little bit about yourself and certainly anything else you want to share. And by the way, I didn't even realize until recently that you were from Little Rock, Arkansas. <laughs> so Yes,
1: yes. yes. Uh, I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas. My my parents were um, educators. Mm-hmm. They uh, were at the Belen Smith College, oh, wow. Little Rock, Arkansas. Wow. Uh, so I grew up literally on a college campus. We we uh, left there in 1962 and moved to California, Los Angeles. Uh huh. Like a lot of Angelinos, I'm I'm not born and bred in Los Angeles. Don't have the born part, but I was bred here. Uh-huh. <laughs> most of my life here. The the opportunities in Los Angeles were so much greater than the opportunities that were available to African-Americans in Arkansas. You have to understand that Arkansas, when, when Brown versus Board of Education came down and uh, not only the schools had to be integrated, but all public facilities had to be integrated Arkansas, rather than allow that integration to happen, shut down these institutions and, and, and public facilities. They literally shut down the public school system for two years. A public pool, rather than allow it to be integrated, they would close the pool. Wow. Um, that was the environment that we had that we were living in but as 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 a young man uh, as a child growing up in, in in that environment, quite frankly, because we lived in completely segregated communities, as a child, I didn't see that because our, our parents protected us against that. Mm-hmm. We lived in a segregated neighborhood that was a middle class neighborhood, and everybody, you know we, we we took care of one another and my parents were, were were teaching at in, in a college environment, and, and so it was an interesting environment because you knew that there was outside of these various boundaries. It was a different world. You you weren't exposed to it directly for the most part. Moving to Los Angeles, you saw the same thing, uh, but you were exposed to it because you didn't have these. Right lines of demarcation of you know this is uh, the black community, this is the white community. There was in, in the '60s, you saw a lot of development happen, but um, uh, the segregation was still there. My father became a social worker when we moved to Los Angeles, uh, and he was one of the, the senior most social workers there. And he was one one of the uh, as an African American. The there was a standard regulation that he could only serve as black clients. Wow, which is in Los Angeles. Wow. So it's so the the segregation that we were talking about was not just in the South.
0: Was this this was in 1962?
1: This was in 1962. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, but 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 the the environment here was was. Even with that, you could see the opportunity in Los Angeles. You could mm-hmm. see that there was a pathway to doing more, to excelling. Uh, and, uh, and, and it was something that our parents really instilled in us. Um, we, we, we could not be mediocre. Right. You know, there was an expectation that you uh, would be doing your best and you had to do your best. Uh, and, and I was blessed to have parents who pushed us in that direction and didn't allow us to, to, to step back. There was an expectation that, uh, from the very beginning, that you were going to go to college, that you were going to become a professional of some sort. This was just expected. That's how we we, we moved through this not so pleasant environment. Never allowed someone else to treat you as less than. Yeah. Uh, I can't say enough about the family uh, support that uh, we all got. I, w- I was one of four children, I have mm-hmm. three sisters, mm-hmm. and, um, and all of us have, have done well. I'm blessed to have, um, as you said, I, I went to Loyola Marymount and then to, to Harvard Law School. And it was at Harvard Law School that I met my, my wonderful bride. Uh, and, and, and she, too, had kind of the same mindset, the same drive, the same expectations. And we, we supported one another. And, you know, we've, we've, been, uh, we've been married for, you know, 40 years now.
0: Wow. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We have two wonderful sons and we have two uh, gorgeous grandchildren and we, we, we could not be happy. We could not be happy.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, of course, I, I know your wonderful wife and your two uh, amazing sons. I think I've I, I lost track of the grandkids, but congratulations on that front as well. So clearly, um, the foundation that your parents set for you certainly has put you on a trajectory of of, of of excellence. And and clearly, I mean, just reading your background, certainly evidence of that. It's sort of interesting uh, uh, to me um, as you you know you you, you finished this sort of a, this amazing uh, career uh, where I can imagine there were only a handful of people who were actually that look like you that actually were doing what you were doing in this amazing law firm. But you leave there, you serve as ambassador, and then you come to the Urban League, that choice uh, to, um, to then, you know, become president and CEO of the Los Angeles Urban League. And, and I know most people know a lot, certainly uh, about the Urban League, um, but talk a little bit of, of, about that and, and, and the role, kind of your perspective on coming there, and 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 the significance that the Urban League plays in this day and time in America.
1: Well, it actually goes back to um, the things that we talked about a little bit earlier. When my wife and I met, uh, I was at the, at the Harvard Law School; she was at the Kennedy School of Government. Both of us. Not only were we ambitious, but we also understood that we were there because other people had sacrificed for us Mm -hmm. uh, to be there. And we owed them all of our effort to not only excel, but also to give back. Right. So that was always a part of what we uh, did, uh, always a part of the decisions that we made. Uh, How can we help? someone else come up and use the advantages that we have to benefit someone else. That's always been a part of it. The decisions that we made in terms of, and it was always a joint decision, decisions that we made in terms of what we were going to do or not do, what we were going to support or not support. There was always a question of how does this benefit Mm -hmm. our community as a whole. Yes, so um, it, it was never just for us. When we came back from Montreal after the Obama administration um, at, at after the eight year term, it was brought to our attention that the Los Angeles Urban League was going through some difficult times and they were looking for a new CEO and um, because of the work that uh, my wife and I had been doing in and around Los Angeles, we were a known commodity with respect to potential funders and the people in and around Los Angeles that made a difference in terms of whether the urban league was going to thrive or fail. Mm. So we t- we took over this 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 role because the urban League was too important with an organization to let it fail. Yes. And number two, we felt confident that uh, given the reputations that we stood on, um, we could turn it around. There was a phrase that I heard, and I can't remember the the source of it, but it, it's one that, that resonated with me for a long time, which is um, when you're trying to decide what you want to do or not do, you don't take the easy path. Yes, you take you take the hard back, and and, and and you take that one. The the phrase that I that, that I remember it, and I, I use it all the time is, you know, if if, if it was easy, I'd let somebody else do it. <laughs> but as a matter of fact, I now remember where the quote came from. Eli Broad, one of the billionaires uh, that, that resides in Los Angeles, uh, had written the book. And we were at a book a book signing um, for him. We had been invited to just listen to him talk about why he wrote the book and this that, and the other. And he had a Q and A afterwards. And he said, and and someone asked him the question. I said, given your resources, how do you choose those things that you that that you're going to put your time and and, and treasure behind?
0: Mm-hmm. And he said,
1: without hesitation, I only do those things that wouldn't get done if I didn't do. Wow and wow. when I first heard that I said that's that's really arrogant and then I thought about it and he said no, that's right because if it's easy enough for someone else to do it, let them do it you should be, when you're blessed with the resources that uh, my wife and I have, have been uh, blessed to have because of the work that our parents and grandparents and great grandparents did to put us here. We shouldn't waste it on easy things that 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 can be done by someone else. So we we, we tend to try to to uh, utilize our resources in a way that puts us in a position where we can do those things that 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 might not have gotten done if we didn't do them. And we do that not to call attention to ourselves but because we feel that it's our obligation to take to to do things that benefit our community more than just ourselves in addition it's gratifying we sleep at night knowing that 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 what we've done is, is is beneficial to someone else now mind you there are so many more people who have done even more than we have. We're not trying to say that we have done more than anybody else. That's not it's not a contest. Yes. Um, one of the one of the benefits, one of the joys of of being in Harvard Law School was not just the environment, but our classmates. When I got to Harvard Law School, we were one of the first classes that Harvard, uh, where Harvard had decided that they were going to really get behind this diversification issue. Mm-hmm. Prior to our classes coming in, there were, there would be two or three African-Americans in, 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 in each class. Uh, they changed their policy. They went out, did the recruiting, and there were uh, approximately fifty per class, or so 150 in the entire school at any one time, and I was blessed to be in that group. But let me be clear: my classmates were Ken Chenault, who's uh, president and CEO of uh, American Express. Yeah, he was a class ahead of me. Kenny Frazier, president and CEO of Merck. He was in my class. Mm -hmm. Charles Overtree, one of the most brilliant minds you will ever in your lifetime get to uh, converse with. He was in my class. These giants and and there were others. uh, And and we, we spent time talking about what we should be doing with this golden ticket, which is what uh, the elite schools really are the the elite school. We were bringing the intelligence to the school. It's not as if going to that elite school gives you right intelligence. But what these elite schools do for you is give you that ticket where people can't say that you are less than uh, right. So it's 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 a validation of what you already knew. It's a validation to other people, what you already knew. But the other part of it was the the opportunity to interact with these very talented, hardworking men and women who understood what their role was, what, what was expected of them. And One of the questions that we talked about among ourselves was, so now that we're here, where do we go? Do we go to um, the the public defenders offices? Do we go to the pro bono uh, type uh, offices? Do we uh, go to the large uh, law firms? Uh, do do we go to the the government agencies as a as 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 a trial attorney? What we discovered in our discussions was we need to be everywhere. Right. There was no place where we shouldn't be. So, I, I as you pointed out, I started off at at, at a government agency. Uh, then I went to Skadden, one of one of the, um, one of, uh, the most uh, well-known uh, law firms in New York. But at the same time, we took time out to work with the nonprofit organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, in our community, we took time out to mentor young uh, 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 kids coming out of law school. We took time out to uh, to to make sure that the pipeline was still there. We mentored the people that came behind us, and and continue to do so, mm-hmm. uh, understanding that, uh, that 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 this is um, an obligation on our part to reach back and. Make sure that the that the people who are coming behind us understand and know that 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 they can achieve what we achieved and more. Yeah, and um, uh, so we were we, uh, blessed to have, have had the opportunities that we had, and, and, and we are blessed to uh, have been able to to help others uh, along the way as well.
0: Well, you know the the Los Angeles Urban League certainly is a, a jewel of an organization in L.A., and they're they're certainly fortunate to have you there. Um, let me let me ask you. You know, it's it's interesting. With um, I think what what is very well known about the L.A. Urban League is that you do partner a lot with large corporations, right? And so um, in this pursuit of making the community and, and all of our communities better. How do those conversations sound right now, right? In the backdrop of what appear to be more complex, fragile kinds of, uh, racial and cultural issues. How do those conversations play out? You know, one with your background two with the, the sort of ongoing conversations that you're having with corporate America, um, what what are those what are those conversations sound like? Um,
1: it's still the same conversations, quite frankly. It was a fight then, it's still a fight.
0: Um,
1: the the diversification of the the, the C suite is, is still ongoing. We're we're making some some games. Ken Shanack, Ken Frazier, two examples, um, uh, and others is exciting. And and should be applauded, absolutely. But um, the the but the, there's so much more work that needs to be done. The question is not so much. Well, there's always more work to be done. It's, mm-hmm. it's simple. When you look at the Trump years, uh, you can get jaded, and you can think. Um. Oh, the, the, things have never been this worse, they've never been this bad, but the fact of the matter is they were worse than this. Um, and I say that not to uh, say that the Trump years were good, no, not at all, but it, it laid bare the thoughts in the, and, in, and, in, and in, and mindsets of a lot of people that were kept silent uh, during the Obama years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact of the matter is that this country is still uh, struggling under the slave mentality that, that they created. Um, the economy that we have is one that is based on a slave model. I cannot say enough about the 1619 Project out of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. We talked about uh, the origins of the slave model and the the slave model of capitalism which we still live in today you can't get health insurance unless your employer aka your slave owner allows you to have it it's the there are so many things that that you can trace back to the slave model that need to be changed that need to be obliterated quite frankly, we've made a lot of progress but there's still so much more to to be made, as you can see from the aftermath of the Biden administration's victory in in the last election. The willingness of uh, a significant portion of the population in the United States to uh, take actions that are, Clearly, racist. Clearly, Jim Crow-like uh, is um, should be an eye-opener for a lot of different people. Yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But the fact of the matter is, we are up to the task. Mm-hmm. We will continue to you know, continue to rise and continue to move forward uh, if we continue to work together and and not allow um, these negative thoughts to Cause us to feel as if we can't make it. Our parents and grandparents and great grandparents fought battles that were much more difficult than the ones that that we're fighting today. And then, and I say that not to say that the, that the the battles that we're fighting are not difficult, uh, but they are different.
0: That
1: mm-hmm. there is still much that needs to be done.
0: When you um... It's interesting, um, you know, your, your response is the conversation is still the same, right? So that, that's uh, clearly, certainly, certainly reflective of the fact that we have made progress. The conversation doesn't change until we continue, as we continue to make progress, I think is, is what I'm taking away from that. Are there specific recommendations that you, as corporate leaders are sitting down with you, Certainly, some amazing organizations, corporations, do work close with the LA Urban League. Uh, certainly, I'm aware of that. Are you giving them specific recommendations as it relates to movement in the C-suite, or uh, movement in the boardroom, or bringing together, you know, the the sort of the dynamics, the culture of the organization overall, to be one that is inclusive?
1: The relationship between the urbanly and the corporate organizations is an interesting one. We find a lot of support from mm-hmm. the corporate community uh, that gives us the wherewithal to to do the job training work that we do, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we and, and we spend a lot of time working with uh, the corporate community to uh, point out the impact that they have both positively and negatively uh, with respect to our communities. And, 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 they listen to us, but you know, it's, it's not necessarily a situation where they're just taking notes and saying, okay, we'll, we'll do this, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is still a long conversation that we're having. A big part of the uh, the positive relationship is the fact that there, we are having that conversation. That was the magic of Whitney and Young Jr. You could have those conversations behind closed doors in, in a room. You can have the conversation with the board members or the senior executive officers. They, they may not necessarily listen at that point, but they do hear. It, it's, it's not a panacea. It's magic bullet that makes everyone change. When you, you know, the example that I often use is the Me Too movement. The harassment of women in the entertainment industry had been going on for decades and is still going on. But it went on went on in silence until the Me Too movement came along. And the Me Too movement gave women and, and, and other men in that environment the license to speak up and say, no, this isn't right, that we can't continue to treat women this way. And 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 that process isn't over, but it is moving at a pace faster than than it was before. And to a certain extent we're seeing that with respect to the diversification of the C-suite as well. Mm -hmm. The arguments uh, against the diversification, the arguments uh, about who is more qualified and less qualified are beginning to lose their strength because it is clear when you look at the talent that comes out of the historically Black colleges, uh, the Morehouse, the Spellmans, the Howards. Vice President Kamala Harris is there not because of some sort of affirmative action type of situation. She's there because she's good. Mm-hmm. She's there because she's talented. She's there because she's smart. And she got there because she came out of an HBCU the list of African-Americans who are doing extremely well in their field is large and is growing. Again, going looking at the Me Too movement, the number of women who are taking control of of these these large businesses is growing uh, significantly. And it's not as if this is a brand new breed of Black people or a brand new breed of, of women. The talent was always there. The skills were always there. What was missing was the opportunity. Yeah. And so uh, we, we, we continued to fight. We continued to move forward. We continued to push back on the ignorance that, was, uh, that, that, that kept us from uh, achieving the goals that, uh, that we rightfully uh, should have been allowed to achieve. And, uh, and we just keep moving forward
0: yeah and, and certainly the the conversations the the awareness the education that you bring the advocacy that you bring certainly um shifts and and certainly helps to make progress overall i also think a, a bit about the impact that you have had just on an individual basis and i only have a couple this this question and one other cuz i can certainly listen to you all night <laughs> Um, but you know when you start to talk about you know impacting other people's lives and the choices that you've made and and the deliberate conversations and and the positive conversations that are going on between you and the and the and the corporate uh and the corporate leaders uh that you're not dragging people and screaming right that everybody's there inside the corporation, uh I know what has always been quite meaningful to many executives is to have someone that can mentor them. And I know in the role that you've been in, you've shaped a number of lives. You've shaped a number of careers. You have inspired people to do to, to higher levels. If you were to think back over a thank you note or an email that you got <laughs> where, and, and where someone told you how you impacted their life, you know, share one of those with us does that truly represent the impact that you really want to have in the world?
1: I don't think of it that way. Mm, okay. Um, it's my job. I mean, mm. I am here because somebody did that for me and I'm responsible for paying it forward. I was able to make some the right choices because someone fooled me aside and said no you shouldn't do that you should do this and my job is to do the same thing for someone else and, and i do get people who come up to me and say thank you very much for this thank you very much for that i'm where i am in no small part due to the conversation that you and i had back when and i can Honestly saying I'm and and I'm I'm actually very proud of this. Most of the time I don't remember having that conversation. Mm. Because it was I, I at the time I saw this person making a choice that I thought was not the right choice. Pulled him aside, said, No, you should be doing this. And I walk away. And it's because i know somebody did that for me Mm -hmm. on several occasions it's the kind of of support that we have to give one another it's not a competition it's (sighs) um uh it's it's what we need to do in order to make sure that um uh what we're doing is, is 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 successful because we can't be successful what's what's the phrase if you see this is another another phrase that I, i'm forgetting now but um, oh i know what it is it said um if you see a turtle on top of a fence post he didn't get there by himself
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i am the turtle on top of the fence post i didn't get here by myself
0: Absolutely. I appreciate that. I was going to ask you to leave us with a quote. And is that, is that going to be the turtle on top of the.
1: (laughs) It's as good as any other. It's as good as any other because, you know, your job is to, is is to, is to help somebody else Mm -hmm. achieve more than you thought you could and to be the best that you can possibly be. And be unapologetic about it. Be yeah. unapologetic about it. It's, it's, it's not braggadocious if you actually are that good. Yeah. I love
0: it. Well, Michael. I, as I said to you, I could talk to you for hours. But you are a very busy man, and you've been quite generous uh, with your time during this session, as you have throughout your life. I think, as I was introducing you, I I introduced you from my own perspective as being a, a very kind and generous and amazing counselor. And uh, I, I certainly can tell my own stories uh, about things that you, you know, how you've impacted my life. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to share you uh, in this, in this new, uh, I call our, my new calling, my new equalizer project, which is, is, is part of a a greater ministry. So I appreciate you being part of it.
1: Well, thank you so much. I, I, am honored that, uh, to, to, to be interviewed by you, you're so successful and, uh, We're really proud of what you're doing. Absolutely.
0: All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so very much for joining us today. The Equalizer Project Podcast has been produced by the Ross Doolin Group, a strategy consulting firm. This podcast, like the firm, is designed to transform. We would love to share additional tools and strategies that can help you solve your toughest business challenges and examine those matters that might compromise long-term success. To book a strategy session with us or engage our services, please visit our website, at the